listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golseth thanks to concordia university wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon hopefully you've gotten your august issue of the lutheran witness now we already had the opportunity to go through searching the scriptures with pastor askins this week and today we get to dig into a great article teaching us a wonderful approach to the scriptures our guest today the reverend dr adam kuntz he serves as pastor and evangelist of trinity lutheran church in denver colorado pastor kuntz thanks so much for joining us today hey it's fantastic to be with you looking forward to digging into the topic that you wrote about in the august issue taking a look at the baptism of jesus and looking at it from the perspective of four different accounts and so when we look at, you know, the, the four gospels, as we call them in the scriptures, what are some misunderstandings regarding events recorded in scripture when they're recorded in multiple accounts or by multiple writers? Yeah, that's, that's a problem that comes up in other places in scripture besides the gospels, but in the gospels, it would seem that the most is on the line because we're talking about who and, and, and what Jesus is about and it's a it's a problem however that you're going to get also in you know kings versus chronicles that you might get in exodus versus deuteronomy different accounts of the same thing and people get easily confused and opponents of the scriptures see this as an opportunity to say oh the scriptures contradict themselves because they don't report even the same events in precisely the same way the misunderstanding probably behind that as well as behind people's confusion about those differences is that scripture is something like closed circuit television. And if you don't have, you know, a, a timestamp uh, matching up between three different cameras at the exact same time, uh, showing you the exact same thing, that therefore it's, it's contradictory, it's self-contradictory, and therefore it can't be trusted. And if I can't trust the Bible, then what can I trust? Because the Bible itself says that it is God's word, that it's inspired. So I want to be able to trust it. But in order to learn how to trust the Bible, just like any person, you have to know not just what the Bible says, but also how it wants to say those things. And when we get multiple accounts of anything, you can see that the Bible wants to show you different perspectives on the same thing. So what I try to do in the article and, and what I hope people do when they read their Bibles is that they let God say things the way that he wants to say them. Mm -hmm. So what is that that best approach to reading the scriptures, especially the synoptic gospels? When we're reading accounts of the same event as we have in these gospels, how do we approach them in a way that we can understand what's happening and not start to like look for the places that don't match up? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that some of this is, in, is pretty intuitive because when we love somebody, the fact that, you know, she told me two different times about the same event in two slightly different ways. If I, if I love her, I don't assume she's lying to me. Mm. So if, if the almighty God who does not lie, he is not a man that he should repent. He does not lie. He wants to inspire four different writers to talk about the same thing or three or two to talk about the same thing in their own ways then that is not only his prerogative, but it's a duty of love to be humble and open to what the one we love is telling us. 
rather than to say to be suspicious. I mean, if, <laughs> if, if I'm suspicious, then it's like, I don't love you or I'm not sure I love you anymore, or you need to satisfy me in order for me to love you. And this is not the way that God loves us. I mean, he doesn't love us when we explain ourselves in the best way, but he himself is sinless and is, and is deserving of love. So it's really our duty to take him at his word, which also means taking him in the way that he says his word and not just in the way that, that we might expect. So the best approach is always the approach of love, which is, which is open and humble and patient and lets the person speak for himself, especially when that's the Holy Spirit. So what does that, that, okay, well, humble and love, those are great words. They might have different meanings depending on the, <laughs> the, the, con, the cultural context in which you're yeah. using them, especially today. Right. So what does that look like practically? How do we, how do we approach the scriptures, particularly this gospel, the, 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 the accounts of like Jesus and his earthly life and his ministry? Yeah. How do we approach those with humility and love? Yeah. And humility doesn't, <laughs> you're, you're totally right that that there's a cultural component to humility because I mean, Paul is humble. We, we know that from acts. We also know that from, from his self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. But Paul is also can tell you when he's better than other people at certain things. <laughs> like he says, I was better at being a Pharisee in Galatians than the other Pharisees, you know? So that, that wouldn't be allowed in most American circumstances today to just say, well, I'm better. So, you know, but, but that, that was consonant with humility. So humility in this case, I, I think that one good way to think about humility regarding the scriptures, regarding God, regarding other people is to think about it as, am I occupying the place that I'm supposed to occupy? Or am I trying to put myself somewhere that I don't belong? And when I open God's word, I don't belong in the place of judge. I belong in the place of listener. The preacher is not a judge. He's a messenger. So I need, humility involves occupying the place that, that actually makes sense, the place where I'm supposed to be. And that's as, that's as a listener and a reader of scripture rather than a judge of scripture, which is why love follows with that because love is also looking to serve and looking for the good of the other. And God doesn't need my attention or my amazing interpretation of his word, but he is asking me to give him love, to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And especially when we're reading the Bible, it is our mind that is called to love because he would teach us and he wants us not to be children, not to be uninformed, but he wants us to be, you know, to, to feast on these things and to get strong through the feasting. So the love involves eating what he puts in front of me. Love, humility, loving, particularly with my mind are not things that generally come naturally to me. So what do I need <laughs> in order to be able to do that, Pastor Kuntz? I think the, the place to start when you open the Bible is with prayer to understand the word and don't think of that just as, okay, I'm praying and, and that's kind of one thing and then I'm reading and that's another thing. All of it involves taking captive your attention. I mean, put your phone off to the side, but also your mind and your heart and everything to what God would say because attention to God doesn't come naturally to sinners. That's why it may be really easy to scroll on your phone for just hours, even if you hate what you're looking at, but it's hard to sit down and read a chapter of the Bible. That's people had that struggle before smartphones. Smartphones just made it 
worse because mm-hmm. it captured more of our attention. But the struggle was always there because we don't want to hear from God. We want to hear from ourselves. That's easy. We want our own prerogatives to prevail. We don't even want to know what gods are, let alone have his prevail. So none of this ever came naturally. It might be a little bit harder because we're so much more distracted, but it's going to be worth the sacrifice. It's it's a sacrifice of love. When I say I'm not going to pay attention to all this other stuff, I'm going to mute my notifications and I'm going to listen to what he says. Mm-hmm. So digging into this, the the account of Jesus' baptism in the four gospel accounts. How do we approach this now? Learning learning all of these things about how we should be approaching these scriptural, scriptural accounts and these stories that may have these contradictions. How do we approach this specific story about Jesus' baptism? And I believe we're going to dig into the texts in a little bit as well. Yeah, we're just going to let them say what they say. So if I'm looking at it as they need to say what I think they should say, I, I might even get frustrated. Like, How many people were standing around when Jesus was baptized? No gospel tells you. (laughs) Or, you know, what were they wearing? Or, you know, whatever. I mean, just let them say what they're going to say. So the reasons that they differ are always going to make sense in the context of the larger book. And this is, I think, helpful for understanding scripture generally, is that I don't want to understand it primarily, that is, first of all, in terms of just that chapter or just that verse, I want to understand them in the units that scripture is given to us as naturally in the original text, and that is as books. And then how do those books make sense next to each other? So in the book of Matthew, right, the specific account of the baptism is very concerned with figuring out how it can be happening that John the Baptist is supposed to baptize Jesus because the idea here is that the guy who is doing the baptism has greater honor or or position or authority than the one who is being baptized, which makes sense with John the Baptist and everyone else he baptizes. Um, they're, They're there, he's God's prophet, and he's preparing them for the one who is to come. When that one comes in Matthew's gospel, he asks how this can be. You know, I shouldn't even be basically changing your shoes paraphrasing for us. And Jesus says, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now that phrase, fulfill all righteousness, is going to come up in other places. Both the idea of fulfillment is all over Matthew's gospel that right now, this is the time when God's promises are coming true in Jesus Christ. What Paul says when he says, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him, in Jesus. So fulfillment all over Matthew's gospel. Righteousness also all over Matthew's gospel. It's there in the righteousness that you need to have in the Sermon on the Mount that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. It is just absolutely everywhere. And the unrighteous in Matthew's gospel will think that they are righteous. But Jesus says that when he sends out his preachers in chapter 10, that when you receive one of them, you're receiving a righteous one. That is not someone who is righteous in a hypocritical way, but righteous in that he proclaims the righteous reign of God in Jesus Christ. So what you can see already in Matthew is that the way that the baptism is discussed is going to connect to everything else about who Jesus is and and how we find God in Jesus Christ. 
It's interesting to look at how Matthew delivers this account of Jesus' baptism, just how how Matthew approaches things as a writer inspired by, uh, as God would inspire him. We have more to talk about as we take a look at Pastor Kuntz's article from the Lutheran Witness August 2022 issue, Four Accounts, One Truth, The Baptism of Jesus. Check it out. You can find it at witness.lcms.org. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50 plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Yeti Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Today we're talking with Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He serves as pastor and evangelist of Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, also author of Four Accounts, One Truth, The Baptism of Jesus in the August 2022 issue of The Lutheran Witness. Taking a look at, so we've talked about Matthew. Anything else about Matthew before we dig into how Mark approaches this account of Jesus' baptism? No, I think we got we got three more guys to go, so I want to give a little time to talk, yeah. All right, so so let's move on to Mark then. How does Mark deliver this account of Jesus' baptism? Typically, the thing that is characteristic of Mark is his brevity. And being brief doesn't mean being simplistic. Just like being simple doesn't mean being simplistic. So the thing that is notable about Mark's account of the baptism is that at the baptism, the heavens, which in Matthew and Luke are opened, and then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. In Mark, they are ripped. The Greek verb is related to the English word schism, like when two groups rip apart from each other. So the heavens are ripped open and the Spirit descends. And this goes along with just the urgency and even the the violence of the language that Mark uses to describe what God is doing in Christ. So in Mark, Jesus will similarly just after the baptism, be thrown into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. So the ripping open gets to this urgency. So in Mark, we hear about urgency. In Matthew, we heard about fulfillment over a long period of time. According to the scripture, we get long citations from scripture. In Mark, there's not so much of this focus on the past and how the past is coming to fulfillment, as on that God is urgent to get to us through Christ. Just after the baptism and after the temptation, Jesus is going to say that he has to go to other places besides Capernaum in order to preach. He has to go. It's for this reason that he came. So he's moving and he's moving relatively quickly. At the death of Jesus in Mark, the temple curtain will, where this word comes back at last in the gospel, the temple curtain which is ripped from top to bottom. The same thing that happened to the sky at the baptism of Jesus happens to the temple curtain at the death of Jesus. That also links up Jesus's baptism for sinners 
identifying himself with sinners, with his death on behalf of sinners. So God wants to get to us through this Jesus who is so insistently with us that he's even willing to not just become one of us, but also take on our sins and bear them all the way to his death to do them to death. And Mark links those things up, not by some extended discourse, but by a single word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like the brevity that Mark has and, and that immediately word that we find all over his account of the gospel and that that urgency that you point out that that's a, a nice way to read read this account and to get that focus on Jesus baptism. What do we learn from from Luke then? Luke is, he's briefer in his account of the baptism of Jesus than either Matthew or really Mark. The thing that is going to be unique about Luke is how at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens are opened and the spirit descends on him like a dove. Luke specifies that the spirit descends somaticos, that is bodily, like a dove. And that brings a greater weight to this idea that the dove that proclaimed peace by its flight back to Noah so that Noah could know that God was at peace with man coming out of the water. Now we know at the baptism of Jesus, God is at peace with man in this dove who is flying. And Luke really focuses on the dove in a way that Matthew and Mark don't, but usually our church art does when depicting the Holy Spirit as a dove. In addition to that, Jesus is praying at his baptism. Now, we'll see Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke praying. He says, as was his custom. We'll, we'll actually see him in, in the temple and in the synagogue, as it were, in church. That's where his ministry begins in the Gospel of Luke. But he will also pray at his death. So the Luke shows us a Jesus who is sufficiently calm or peaceful or restful in God's will, if not necessarily in the circumstances of his life, in order to pray at these times. So if we saw urgency in Mark and we saw fulfillment and righteousness in Matthew, in Luke we see prayer and we see divine peace, which is announced by the dove who's flying over the water, but also by the man who is himself praying and receiving these things. And he's going to receive not only his baptism, but also the moment of his death in this peaceful prayerful way. And then lastly, John. How is John different? How does John deliver this account of Jesus' well, baptism? Yeah. I mean, John, as is his custom, is really different. <laughs> so whereas the other three gospels narrate in what it, in, in art is called foregrounded time, that is the time that you're in as you, you know, watch the movie or read the book, that's foregrounded time. And then you have maybe a flashback or you have a, a foreshadowing, right? Jumping back in time or forward in time. John is looking back in his gospel as he has John the Baptist narrating the baptism. So John the Baptist is trying to explain how he witnessed to who Jesus was and specifically, and specific to, to the fourth gospel, John the Evangelist gospel is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That is that he is the atoning sacrifice for sin. And that John witnessed to these things and that connected to that is the recognition that God told him, you're gonna know this is the Lamb of God. This is the atoning sacrifice. This is the one when you see the spirit descending on him. So this is interesting because I, I interpreted in terms of Noah, 
the sign of the dove earlier, but in John's gospel, it's not interpreted in terms of Noah specifically. It's interpreted as this is how you know who you've been talking about, John, because John's question, John the Baptist's question is not, you know, is, is there a Messiah? He's like, who is the Messiah? Like, who's going to be the next president of the United States? Kind of a question, right? So this is how you know is when you see the spirit descending on him and that happens at the baptism. So what you're getting in the fourth gospel, John, the evangelist gospel is this specific witness that the Baptist said, this is the guy, this is the one, listen to him. Because the question is going to come up all over John's gospel. Is this really the guy, <laughs> right? From Nazareth? We know his father, Joseph of Arimathea. There's all this confusion, right? Is this the guy? Are we supposed to follow him? That's crazy. And Jesus will say, no, these are they that witness of me. The scriptures testify of me. The father testifies of me. And John the Baptist therefore tells us, the father told me I was going to see the son with the spirit descending and I saw it. And I'm here to tell you, He's the guy, he's the Christ, he's the Lamb of God. So with all four of these accounts, all of the the different focus in each of these accounts, what is the benefit for us to have all of these different viewpoints, these different angles? What is What does that all add up to for us as we're reading through these scriptures and, and trying to understand what, what the Holy Spirit is telling us through these? It adds up to a wisdom that is fully fledged, that I don't just have one or two things that I have learned of Christ or that I've learned of God or that I've learned about myself from the scriptures, but that when I let the scriptures speak about all that they speak about in the way that they speak of them, then I grow into the, the image of Christ, the way I was meant to in my baptism, that I was given this manifold wisdom and that when I receive it in the way that he wants to give it to me, that is in its richness, its fullness, its diversity, that then I am wise in the way that he wants me to be. And that's, so when I read about the baptism of Jesus, four accounts, it's a test of a larger thing in the life of a Christian, the life of any reader of scripture, whether I will take God at his word or not, because that's really all that finally matters, right? What does God say? Does he say, does he say rise and live forever with me, inherit the kingdom prepared for you? What does God say? So I want to learn now how to learn to listen to God, how to receive his word, receive his wisdom, because that's really all that matters in life or in death. You've shared with us a, a beautiful way of looking at the scriptures. What does this mean for you as a pastor when you're studying God's word to preach God's word to his people, particularly from the gospels? Yeah, it means the sermon should never be the same because God doesn't say, even the same event in the exact same way in everywhere that it appears in the Bible. And my job as a pastor is not to say what is easy or, or simple, or I've said it a hundred times this way, so I'll say it a hundred and first time this Sunday. It's to say what God says in the way that he says it. That's, I, I'm relaying a message. I'm not just standing up there making it up. So when I get four different accounts, I'm not going to preach the exact same kind of a sermon, tone, vocabulary, everything from John's gospel, as I will from Luke's gospel on the baptism of Jesus. I, I let each text speak for itself. Hmm. That's beautiful. What are the questions that when, when you're teaching on this, uh, when you're teaching the gospels, what are the questions that, that might come up regarding what we address today in a Bible class about the, the four yeah. different approaches and how do you answer those questions? The big question that, I, that I've gotten on this is, it seems like John doesn't want to baptize Jesus in Matthew, 
But then it seems like that's the very thing he's eager to do in the fourth gospel and John's gospel. And the reason I think people think that's contradictory is because a lot of times when they read the Bible, what they're really importing into the story, which is natural when you when you hear a story or watch a movie or something, you're importing your sense of how this feels rather than just sticking with the words and then trying to figure out from the words what is going on. So when they're hearing John say, I shouldn't be baptizing you in Matthew, then they're thinking, okay, he didn't, he didn't want to. What he just very literally says is it's not fitting or right. Like it, it doesn't, it's not proper because you rank above me. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. In John's gospel, there's no, the same question isn't being brought up. The question is, how do I know who the Messiah is? So there are two different questions. And the reason people think that they could at all contradict is because they're importing two different kind of emotional states into the Bible as they read those, even though the Bible doesn't really say anything about how John felt about all this. You get a similar problem at John's death where they're like, does John actually, is he not sure if Jesus is the Messiah or is he just trying to direct his disciples to ask the right questions so they like move on to the Messiah? And what we're doing there is we're often reading the Bible and then importing, okay, this is how I would feel if I said this wasn't fitting or proper. And this is how I would feel if I said I wasn't sure. Rather than just letting the text say what it wants to say and then not telling us like how John felt. And if I don't assume that John felt any certain kind of a way, then it's fine if he asks two different questions. There's only a contradiction there if I assume that John felt a certain way in Matthew and then a different way in John. And I'm like, how can you feel both ways about the same thing? <laughs> Great points. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, serves as pastor and evangelist for Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, author of Four Accounts, One Truth, The Baptism of Jesus in the August 2022 issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Kuntz, thanks so much for being our guest on The Coffee Hour today. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.